Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening for those of you watching uh, and listening from overseas. I'm Bill Glaskell at the Volcker Alliance. I'm here with Susan Wachter from the Penn Institute for Urban Research in Philadelphia, and this is Special Briefing. And we have a very special, special briefing for you today with really an all-star, an all-star panel as we go into the summer. On tape today from Boise, Idaho, Governor Brad Little of Idaho, talking about infrastructure, tax cuts, COVID, housing, and more. We have live from Washington on a very, very busy day, Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux from Georgia's 7th District, a longtime friend and colleague at the Volcker Alliance, and uh, she's going to talk about her work on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee and where they are with the big bill. Live from Mineola, New York, in Nassau County, home of the New York Islanders and their new arena, Laura Curran, uh, Nassau County Executive. We're talking about infrastructure today and really nobody knows more about this than Laura. This is a huge county with two coastlines, suffered greatly during Hurricane Sandy and other uh, other disasters. And uh, live from Concord, Massachusetts, Tom Doe, colleague again, founder of Municipal Market Analytics. Tom is uh, heads the most the preeminent uh, municipal market uh, independent analytics firm and has done a lot of work on climate change and climate change and municipal debt. Manny Diaz, a former mayor of Miami, uh, who was on our program, had to drop out at the last minute due to the the Cuban uh, humanitarian and political situation. We hope to have him back uh, shortly thereafter. A couple of quick housekeeping details. Today's event is coming to you with the support of the Volcker Alliance, Penn IUR, and uh, the Century Foundation, a generous grant from the Century Foundation. Thank you to everybody. This program and the archived version of this event and all past ones are on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. Very easy to find. We don't take live questions during the program, but we have taken many questions from you on registration. We'll be getting to those at the end of the program. And um, uh, that's about it. I just uh, remind all of our speakers to, if you would, please mute your, mute your phones and other devices so we're not disturbed during the uh, coming hour. Uh, so with that, let me hand this over to, to Susan Wachter, co-director of Penn IUR and my long-term colleague. Uh, Susan, please take it away. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Bill, and with all of our listeners and our uh, excellent panel for today. And it is my pleasure to introduce Brad Little, the 33rd governor of the state of Idaho. Brad Little became governor in 2019 after four consecutive terms in the Idaho Senate and then as Lieutenant Governor. And uh, relevant for our work, he is a fan of accrual accounting, the first state, Idaho, in the nation to do this good practice, as Volcker has called, Volcker Alliance has called out. So with that, we will turn to our tape and the first question from Bill Glasgow to the governor. Thank you. It's great to sit down with you today, Governor. Thank you so much for joining us. Susan and I are gonna ask, ask you a few questions in the the short time we have, 
Idaho, I've read and I've seen from your speeches, Idaho is posting a record surplus, which is great. And you've said you want to put much of this into tax rebates and infrastructure investment. First, why the tax tax rebates? And second, is where do you want to put the infrastructure money? Well, we are not certain, as I don't think anybody is, about when this is going to normalize. We know there's an enormous amount of funds that have been injected into the economy, whether they've been direct to states, they've been to individuals, they've been to PPP loans to businesses. And so we're cautious. We know the state's growing. We know our revenue's up. Uh, We know we started at a very conservative base because we cut all our agency spending by 10% about uh, 15, 16 months ago, except for public education and we had, which moved our base down and which really gave us a great opportunity. But until this normalizes, we're inclined to do kind of the Mitch Daniels approach, a one-time rebates back to taxpayers, along with uh, lowering the rates. We had the biggest tax decrease in the history of the state, but rather than make it permanent, we wanna make sure that it's, that we know what normal is when the federal government ceases if they ever do to inject money into the economy and then as far as your second question bill we put money into infrastructure last year some of our savings but both cares dollars and the arpa dollars were very specific and and we believe i have no reason not to believe that the administration and the and the authors in congress did that because they wanted to have a a lot of pent up demand for an infrastructure package. Along with that, we passed our own infrastructure package. We started collecting uh, revenue from online sales tax, and we took some of that money and dedicated it to addressing our unmet transportation needs. But we'd love to be able to have the flexibility to move some of the ARPA dollars into there, but that's up to Congress and not up to me. Well, as a follow-on question, Governor, what do you hope to see in infrastructure legislation from Congress? And what is most important for Idaho from the federal government in this regard? Well, some of my fellow states have have already spent their ARPA money. We've spent very little of ours. The legislature comes back in January. Not only have this surplus to deal with, we'll have the ARPA money to deal with and sometimes oftentimes in government having too much money is a very challenging issue for numerous reasons we'd like to just have more flexibility with it and as i said i think that the prohibition on roads and bridges and infrastructure was basically a political move to try and get consensus in congress behind the packages being worked on back there today and so this package is important in some ways for Idaho, you believe? There's two things. There's unmet maintenance, bridges, roads, etc. And then there's obviously congestion elimination. And being that we're the fastest growing state in the nation, we have no shortage of that. And so we want to plan for that. Governor Kim Thorne, two governors ago, put in Garvey bonding, where we basically pledged some of our federal dollars for some big projects, but that program started to run out. 
And unfortunately, we didn't pay for that program. So it took somewhere between 50 and $70 million a year. I know in a lot of states, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it is in Idaho, out of maintenance to do the debt retirement. Our program that we passed with the legislature this time, we dedicate a certain part of sales tax to retire those bonds. So we are not, it's not gonna hurt us in maintenance going forward. And we're excited uh, for the opportunities there. And the other thing about when you do these programs, you can bid better, you can plan better. The construction industry, the construction workers know there's gonna be jobs there. There are just a lot of reasons to have certainty about your infrastructure plan going forward. So if we could keep on infrastructure, and then Bill, I'll turn it back to you. How is infrastructure related? Is it related to the incredibly buoyant market in Boise and the housing affordability issues that are secondary? Is it coming along with a huge growth? Is there infrastructure component to that? There's a lot of reasons to do infrastructure. Idaho is a pretty isolated state. Two thirds of our state is controlled by the federal government. So we have uh, more lane miles per person in Idaho than Washington, Oregon, Nevada, and Utah. So we, we always have a challenge with infrastructure given the wide open spaces, the very geography, uh, but it's just the right thing to do. As the state grows, uh, you know, we have to have more capacity, but for local government, one of the things they can do on housing affordability is build corridors into areas that are more affordable to build on, uh, that get some back to either the main highway or the freeway or into the communities. So infrastructure is a way to also address housing affordability if you do it right. And we lead that up to local government. I can tell you from talking to mayors, uh, some of them haven't figured out and some of them are struggling with it right now. Idaho is about to become the sixth state, only the sixth state to actually total up it's deferred maintenance, infrastructure maintenance costs. We've worked with your budget office on this and we're very happy uh, because it's something that we've campaigned a lot for. Let me just ask a, a COVID question. At least according to the stats, I just saw about just around 40% of Idaho residents are fully vaccinated. Are there any provisions in the, the American Rescue Plan Act, ARPA, or the other federal bills that, are, that, that can help you increase the vaccination levels? And why the, is it your very young population that's also pulling that the average is down? Part of it's the demographics, our young population, but part of it is what we indigenous Idahoans are pretty liberty-minded. And the new people coming here are maybe even more so. You know, I've had a, a firm belief that the longer it goes and the more people see their neighbors and friends and family members that have been vaccinated with no negative consequences, the more it's going to happen. We've got enough of a, our older population. We're very successful with the older population that, you know, the risk of significant fatalities or hospitalization. My gold standard from the very start of this was that we preserve hospitals capacity. We've got all kinds of hospital capacity. But Bill, I want to go back just briefly to the basically accrual accounting. This is something I've thought about for a long time. It wouldn't be a bad idea for the federal government. You know, if they do accrual accounting on Medicare, it would scare the hell out of anybody that has any kind of a remote mathematical background. But it's really the right thing to do. Uh, unmet maintenance, accrual as far as new rules and laws, 
uh, what you need to do. We're excited to implement that as we go forward. We look forward to working with you as we perfect how we do that. Thanks very much. We have uh, back to sort of infrastructure and climate. I'm wondering how Idaho is doing with the the drought and wildfires. Are there any provisions? There's, there's a water and sewer provision in the ARPA Act. Are you able to tap any federal funding to help you deal with water shortages and other emergency needs right now? Well, there's some, but again, we did the right thing sole and separate from the federal government. Some of this money we saved, we put into water infrastructure. You know, we, I guess it's nice to get that money from the federal government. We're just a little concerned about paying it back or who's going to pay it back. But we're doing this on our own. We're doing it organically. We're building one of the things that we've done in Idaho is we're storing water underground. We're recharging the aquifer that for years we have depleted. And we're putting a lot of resources into taking off season water and putting it back, make sure it's clean and put it back into the aquifer. So regardless of what happens at the federal government, we in Idaho fully intend to do the right thing for future generations. You know, these, these are things that you invest a dollar in today it takes a long time to get that dollar back, but it's the right thing to do. Thank you, Governor. Thank you for spending the time today. And we appreciate your focus on the long run for Idahoans and for America. We're turning back to our online program in a moment. But once again, thank you, Governor. My pleasure. Well, thank you again to Governor Little. Very interesting talk. And we're going to now swoop across the country and uh, bring on uh, Representative Carolyn Bordeaux, probably one of the few people in the Congress who actually understands the Zen of state budgeting, having been the, the Georgia Senate budget director for many years before she went to, to Georgia State. Carolyn, you're in the thick of things now at the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Tell us what's going on and what your goals are. Well, yeah, so I represent the northeastern suburbs of Atlanta. We have a really brutal commute here. And uh, so there's a lot of interest in infrastructure. I sit on transportation infrastructure on that committee. I also sit on the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is the bipartisan group of 29 Democrats and 29 Republicans. And it's kind of the House counterpart to the Senate bipartisan working group. And uh, we originally worked on a very a bipartisan compromise around infrastructure that was almost adopted in its entirety over on the Senate side. So I uh, have been really excited to be a part of that effort. So just a couple things. We passed out of the House the INVEST Act. And what this was was surface transportation. It was about $547 billion for surface transportation programs, reauthorizing the FAST Act. So this is our roads, bridges, transit, rail, that universe of infrastructure. The funding in the House bill was an 80% increase over the previous infrastructure bill. So a huge amount of money flowing into it. It actually almost exactly matches what was in the House Problem Solvers Caucus framework. So the amounts are, are quite similar. And when you're hearing the numbers thrown around at the federal level, uh, one of the things I've had to get used to is they change the time horizon. So you'll hear this $1.2 trillion package. 
What that is, is the five-year package extended over eight years. And so you have to really be careful about comparing the apples to apples. That, that overall, that 1.2 trillion bipartisan package also includes things like broadband, water infrastructure, and electric vehicles. So it's uh, not only the INVEST Act, but also this expanded portfolio of infrastructure. The House has also passed a huge increase, $100 billion, for water and wastewater. And as you all know, this is not a, a sexy topic. I, I, it's kind of like your abs when you work out. It is your core, though. And we have done very little over the past decades to invest in our water and wastewater infrastructure. And so we see all sorts of situations in our urban areas. We have a lot of you know, the, that lead leaching into our water. We are struggling to keep up with growth in an area like mine. We have huge swaths of the suburbs that are on septic systems. They can't grow. They can't develop unless they have water infrastructure and wastewater infrastructure that underpins them. And so this is a huge investment in wastewater and drinking water. So coming out of the house the problem solvers and the Senate bill is smaller than that. Last I checked, it was about $60 billion in there as compared to $100 billion. So smaller, but huge increase over prior years where we put in about a billion annually for these programs. So I think we'll be really happy uh, whatever we get in, on that front. You know, that's kind of the overall lay of the land. We are all watching the bipartisan framework and trying to figure out what's going to happen. Is it going to make it out of the Senate? I am currently signed on to a letter that Jared Golden uh, has initiated asking for the House to take a vote independent of the bigger reconciliation. Let's just get this bipartisan infrastructure bill done. And I think we are pushing towards that in the House. Let's just get the bipartisan bill done. Then we can turn our attention to kind of the human infrastructure, education, healthcare, all of those other priorities that we have as a part of reconciliation or as a, a separate piece of legislation. Thanks for the quick update. We're going to divert from the, the regular program just a little bit because I know you have to get back to work, uh, Carolyn. And we just wanted to ask you, so what's the, the likely path right now? I think before we went on, you were, you were talking about something about closure. Where is this all going in the near, in the near term? Right. So I just got a, a text from my staff that Schumer is going to be filing cloture on the bipartisan infrastructure package on Monday. And for those who don't follow what cloture is, that's the vote you have to take to overcome a filibuster. So that's what, uh, and it takes cloture, you file that motion, it takes a few days to ripen, and then they take the vote to bring the bill to the floor. So that's positive. He could withdraw it, though. I think there was a push. And what we were hearing was there's an effort by the Senate to have a bill uh, ready to review by this Friday. So just one other thing to know about this process is while the House has passed the INVEST Act and this water and wastewater bill, those are big reauthorizing bills. So there's a lot of language and there's a lot of language to address climate change, a lot of language and programs there to address equity issues. And what's in the bipartisan framework is much simpler. What it has been so far is just a line saying, you know, roads, bridges, and then a number. So I think we're all really anxious to see what authorizing, what language is filled in to kind of go behind the budget numbers. And that's what the Senate has been working on. So one last question. Is there any consensus at all about how all this is going to be paid for? Or will it be like 2017 and we'll just, we'll just put it on the credit card? 
Yeah, so I spent my life working in public finance. I've got my PhD in public administration uh, with a focus in public finance. I was director of Georgia's Senate Budget Office during the Great Recession, uh, helping them balance the budget during that time. And of course, you know, have come to Washington now with fiscal responsibility background, and uh, it is challenging. There is a huge struggle to try to pay for these bills and to try to come to some kind of consensus around that. What's come out of the bipartisan framework is this idea that we're gonna do it, but we're not gonna raise taxes to do it. And the problem is nobody wants to cut expenditures either. (laughs) And so we will see. The pay-fors are wobbly and I'm not a huge fan of them. That being said, you have to compromise when you're working in a place like this. And so I'm willing to, to make some compromise in order to get this done, because we do really need this investment, not only for economic development, relief of congestion, but also to really address the threat of climate change. I think we're waiting to see what the CBO score will be, so the Congressional Budget Office will give us official numbers, but I suspect there'll be a lot of challenges going forward on that front. So, Congresswoman, what do you think are the chances that this will, in fact, be passed? Well, I am hopeful. I think there is a lot of interest on both sides in getting this done. It was a very popular discussion point on the House side when we put together the bipartisan proposal. So we had a lot of Republicans who are really interested in it. And it has things, you know, a lot of Republicans tend to represent more rural areas and it has huge investments in things that they really need, water being one, but also that broadband investment is a big part of these infrastructure packages. So... I think they're interested. You can see it feels like uh, Mitch McConnell is kind of feeling his way along, you know, trying to figure out which way the wind is blowing. But I would say to everybody on this call, if you are interested in infrastructure and interested in getting this through, then now is the time to weigh in with your senators and your representatives to let them know that you're interested in this and this making it through. Well, thank you. Congresswoman Bordeaux, Carolyn, it's always great to have have you on. I know you've got a tremendously busy day. Stick around as long as you can to to listen and get back to the business of the people in the House. Great to be here. Have a wonderful summer. And uh, we're now going to go from Washington to local. Laura Curran, the county executive of Nassau County, good friend of Dick Ravitch, one of the, the main backers of our efforts. As I mentioned before, you've got plenty of environmental issues to address. Tell us about what's on your mind. And we can certainly, if you can stick around for the Q&A, we can grill you. And congratulations on that new hockey arena. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's exciting to have a private investment in our county, $1.5 billion arena. And that's just phase one. And of course, it keeps our beloved islanders where they belong on Long Island. So just to give everyone a little perspective about Nassau County, you know Long Island. It's divided into two counties. We're the one just to the east of New York City. So we're known as America's first suburb. It's about 450 square miles, about 1.3 million residents. And our county budget is about $3.3 billion. So our population is such that uh, there are actually about 11 states that have a smaller population than us. So we're sort of a respectably sized state if we were to be a state that I'm suggesting that, but just to put it into perspective. And You know, we were really hit hard by the pandemic. Right next to New York City, we lost about 3,200 of our residents to COVID. And we were one of the very first places to really have to shut down. And of course, I'm concerned about the health aspect, obviously. And with the county, we're the ones with the health department, the ambulances, Office of Emergency Management, the morgue. That was all us. And at the same time, on the parallel track, I was very concerned about the economy. 
not just selfishly for our budget, 40% of our budget comes from sales tax, but for the jobs, you know, kids not in school, the economic havoc, the mental health impact. And so I felt that my job was, of course, to manage the health crisis and also to support our economy as much as possible. So I, I joke that I have become our governor's most annoying pen pal. I visited the malls. I visited the bowling alleys. I visited the gyms, all these places that weren't allowed to open saw what they had put in place and really advocated for their safe reopening. And I feel good about that because when they were finally able to reopen, very little transmission happened within those places. So we're in an interesting situation. If you know anything about Nassau County government, we've had chronic budgetary issues for decades. And, uh, you know, I've been very strict on fiscal discipline, haven't raised property taxes, but very fiscally disciplined. And so we actually got into the pandemic with a bit of a surplus, which was helpful. Then we were able to refinance our debt at historically low rates. And so we actually could have got out of the worst of the pandemic with a surplus as well. Now, on top of that, the the, uh, Idaho governor said, you know, it's kind of an interesting problem to have too much money. I would never say we have too much money, but we did now that we have help from the federal government. Of course, we're all waiting to see what's happening with the infrastructure bill. But with the ARPA money, We're able to get our legislature in line. We've worked very well with our legislature, our county legislature, to approve the first tranche of money for infrastructure, for shoring up our environment, for mental health, and also for helping our businesses with grants, with loans, with other kinds of assistance, getting people back to work. So when you think about us, we live on an island. Obviously, water is very important to us. We're surrounded by it on the North Shore and the South Shore. And we live on top of our sole source of drinking water. So we're doing everything we can to deal with sewage. The representative, Representative Bordeaux, said sewage is not very sexy. In Nassau County, it's very sexy. We really don't take it for granted. So we're cleaning up the South Shore. We've got probably the biggest infrastructure project in our lifetime called the Bay Park Conveyance Project to get nitrogen-rich effluent out of the South Shore. And that project, we're working with the state, we're working with the federal government. We have a big ask in for the federal infrastructure package to help support that, but it's going to happen either way. And that will help our shellfish come back. It'll help our marshland to come back, which is our natural storm buffer. You mentioned in the introduction about Superstorm Sandy. We need to be as resilient as we possibly can along our shorelines uh, for people's livelihoods, uh, for quality of life, and of course, for public safety. One thing I will say, I'm really proud of our residents. I think the fact that we've been able to rebound so strongly from the pandemic is that 80% of adults in Nassau County are vaccinated. We've really led a campaign right from the very beginning. It was based on Rosie the Riveter, you know, we can do it, Nassau. And uh, we've got a wonderful health department and we have really great residents who understand the importance of the vaccine as the passport back to normal, getting back to normal. 95% of our seniors, 65 and older, are vaccinated. So, you know, that's allowing us to have the concerts, the parks are open, the pools are open, the beaches are open. You know, we really are relying on those tourism dollars. As you can imagine, our tourism industry took a terrible hit with the pandemic, and that's really a big part of our economy. And one more aspect about our economy that's really kind of on the upswing, of course, healthcare is the biggest sector, but is we have a big, a robust filming operation. We've got two state-of-the-art film studios that are used by 
Apple TV, Netflix, the major studios, HBO, and a new one's being built. A new film studio is being built as well. So we're right next to New York City, got a lot of private investment, and we were deemed the safest community in America last year by U.S. News and World Report. So I'm feeling very optimistic. And one more thing, and then I'll let you ask a question because I know you're, I'm probably talking a little too much. We got our first bond upgrade Moody's recently for the first time in 15 years. So I think that's a sign that uh, our chronic budgetary problems, we are working through them. It is not easy work, but we're getting through them. And um, I'm really proud of the progress that we've made so far. Well, thank you very much, Laura. Uh, We're going to go to questions in just a couple of minutes. I want to remind you all you're watching and listening to special briefing from Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR on both of our websites and archived also on both sites. Please uh, come back and enjoy the the past ones. I'm going to turn the mic and the camera over to my colleague Susan Wachter right now for the next section. Thank you, Bill. And thank you, Congress. Uh, Thanks, Laura, on a very interesting discussion of Nassau County. Now we're turning to Tom Joe, president of Municipal Market Analytics, who will give us a market perspective on infrastructure needs with a focus on resilience. Tom? Thank you, Susan. And uh, thank you, Bill, for having me on today. Um, An important topic for sure, and one with, uh, you know, a lot of perspectives and a lot of opinions. I wanted to Thinking of Laura's comments about the Islanders, I I always think when we talk about infrastructure, I think about the great hockey player, Wayne Gretzky, who said it's important not to follow where the puck is, but where it's going. I think this is really ties in about infrastructure and then the discussion about climate and resilience. And my perspective toward infrastructure certainly changed about five years ago, where now I look at all infrastructure through the climate lens. It's looking not just at existing projects and what their risks, but also what the future probable risks are for any new efforts that are being done. And and especially not just on durability, but also on equity as well. And I think when we're talking about this infrastructure bill and the Biden administration, I mean, Biden very early on, he focused on this Justice 40, the executive order. We're directing 40% of federal support toward areas that are disadvantaged. And one of the things that's really kind of interesting about that is that when we look at where climate risk, it's mostly where people are disadvantaged. So if we're directing infrastructure dollars to those areas and to those people who need support, we're also putting it, directing it to areas that are most vulnerable from a climate perspective and, are, and have the greatest risk. And my kind of mantra around looking at the climate issue as it pertains, again, to infrastructure is there are like three stages. And the first one is around climate is about denial. And that's been going on for decades, hundreds of years in in terms of denying that climate risk is something that climate change is occurring. But now where we are, we're in the world of defend. And that's the second stage. And this is where the infrastructure bill gets really interesting and complex because we're going to have a lot of money that's directed toward this broad term infrastructure has already has been somewhat undefined today even, but we throw it around somewhat loosely. But there's gonna be projects, whether it's the the gates and seawalls to protect Houston that has a, a Houston, Texas that has a $26 billion tag or smaller efforts that are at, uh, for residences along the coast. And then the, the third stage of course is to depart. And this is I think the one where it's really important to have hard conversations about when these efforts to defend fail and are just unable to withstand the stress of nature itself. 
And then we're talking about migration. So now we have to think about where are people going to move to, where you know, it's moving away from the areas where the climate is, is poses the greatest risk and where there will be new growth and where people will migrate, not only within the U.S. to different areas, but also where people will seek to come to the U.S. from places like Africa, Middle East, and India, Pakistan, these types of spots where we're going to have to deal with those questions and where will those people go. When we talk about infrastructure, we need to talk about what that future might look like. And fortunately, there's a lot more data now than ever before. As Bill and Susan, you know that we work with a firm called RISK, R-I-S-Q. And what they've done is been able to quantify the climate risk for every municipal QCIP, as well as mortgage-backed securities. And what this enables an investor or government planners is to be able to look at data that assesses flood risk, inland and coastal, intense heat risk, hurricane risk, wildfire risk. And these help to then guide where, if we're spending dollars, where might we be putting good money in a bad area? Or where we need to stabilize infrastructure that stabilizes a community while a risk is occurring so that you can give people time to migrate away. So I think that it's exciting time for all this. But again, we have to look where the puck is going for the future and to assess these risks. In the municipal finance world, we look at at 20 and 30 year time horizons because that's where capital, how long capital is being lent. So it's really important now that we look not only at financial disclosure, which has always been the Achilles heel of the municipal market and consistently needs to be improved, but also for climate disclosure and use some of this data in order to inform not just investors who are lending capital for these projects, but also to assess them on an ongoing basis and also to help with the planning process. I think with this, the federal dollars, and I think you know the comments about too much money being around, we know that that some of the the absence of borrowing that's been going on in in the municipal market has been because because of all the federal programs, the surpluses that have been generated from uh, sales tax revenue and from investment uh, to income. Is that these are all things that have kind of curtailed some of the borrowing, but also kept it kind of a has you know, made made kind of a prudent perspective. But it all has to be around coming back to this disclosure theme that's so important that we really do that when federal dollars come into play. That there's accountability around it, that there is a way of tracking the planning and the expenditures of the dollars and where those dollars are going. So, you know, it's an exciting time, but I always think about my former congressman, Barney Frank, who shared that when during the 2008, the subprime crisis was what happened there was a disconnect between the borrower and the lender. And I think what we really need to see with this period is that we, as money is being spent on these projects, is that we make sure there's a tight connection between that borrower and the lender or the recipient of the cash. And so disclosure and climate planning becomes a big part of that. Well, thank you, Tom. Hold a couple of those thoughts because I know we have one attendee question that gets right to the heart of some of the things you were bringing up. Laura Curran said, I'm ready for questions. Okay, so let me me ask you a a question, uh, broaden it out a little, and I'm going to turn it over to to Susan. Delana Smith from Glide Revitalization uh, asked, how can we help our unincorporated community to get access to these much-needed federal funds? I'd like to broaden that out a little. Long Island, Nassau has has unincorporated as well as incorporated communities. The bigger question, though, which I've heard from a lot of county officials and local officials is, all right, there's federal funds, 
there's city funds, there's county funds, there's education funds. How do we coordinate all this to, to avoid duplication? Uh, I know Detroit has worked out a deal with Wayne County, at least about arts spending. What's the situation in Nassau County and how are you going to work this out? That is an excellent question. So Nassau County has a very complicated municipal structure. So there's county government. We have also within that three very large towns, which are almost, you know, they could be, some of them could be the size of their own state. We have two small cities and within the towns, we have about 64 villages, but there are a lot of areas within the towns that are not villages that are unincorporated. So we are working with our municipal partners and we're also using some of the federal money that we have from the ARPA money for school districts. We have 56 independent school districts that we don't run. They report directly to the state, but we want to help all of these entities, including our nonprofits and our businesses, get access to all of the help that's out there. So we have something that we've called Boost NASA. It's an online portal, and it's also a brick and mortar building in one of our parks right in the heart of the county in Eisenhower Park, where it's kind of a clearinghouse, a funnel of all of the programs that are available. The county programs, the state programs, the federal programs, and we're talking about loans, we're talking about technical assistance, we're talking about grants. And we're also using some of the consultants that we use to help sort this out for ourselves. And we're borrowing, we're lending this assistance to our school district so they can make sure that they take advantage of all of these programs out there. Some of the towns have rental assistance programs. That's part of this bundle of information as well that's in one place. You know, in Nassau County, we spend, we send a lot more tax dollars to Washington than we get back, to Albany than we get back. So with all of these opportunities, we want to make sure that we're not leaving any money on the table, that every penny is captured and used in the appropriate way within Nassau County. And this is really helping us to do that. Thanks. Uh, Susan? Yes, let me follow up on that question for both you, Laura, and Tom as well. So the governor uh, spoke of the difficulties getting infrastructure spent wisely by some localities in the state of Idaho. But it is, after all, at the local level where decisions for connecting roads to the main highways are made and to bring economic activity to new areas and to provide housing where affordable housing is a problem. So that, plus the climate issues, requires coordination planning. So I hear what you're saying, uh, Laura Curry, that you're making... Uh, access easier to these funds, but it seems to me that it may require more than accessing the funds. It actually requires planning. So, to, and as you spoke to Tom, so Tom, maybe you want to start and say, tell us more of what you would have in mind, ideally, about the coordination that would occur across layers of government. Well, the, the interesting aspect of it all is that there's data that's available. You know, for example, in, in Nassau County, you can take all the different the, the issuers that uh, where you know money is borrowed and profile all of them to assess you know, where how what's the probable risk of say flooding um, over the next uh, 10, 20, 30 years. Now it's data that you have to look at very carefully and be sure that you know, it fits into to all the other needs that are being, that are demanded. But I think that when he really gets into it, it's about prioritizing. And when you're looking at 20 and 30 year investments, if we believe the science that's now being utilized, is that we're looking at real risks 30 years out. So it means that if we're building, you know, it takes a while to plan a project, then you have to actually, you know, build the project. And then by that time, you know, we could be 
you know, five to 10 years into a plan that may or may not work. And there'd be a lot of people that are going to propose some, you know, grandiose projects around, around climate change and resilience. I think the idea is that you have to look at almost start with an infrastructure audit. And this gives an opportunity to say, where, what does our infrastructure exist today? What are the risks that it's posed to on different timelines? What do we need to stabilize? What can we protect and what can't we protect? I mean, I remember when Mayor Bloomberg was down in lower Manhattan in 2013 saying, you know, we will, you know, defend New York to the end. You know, how long can you, you know, can you do that? Is that really possible? And so again, this comes back to your comment, Susan, is that, and, and Laura's acknowledging the complex problems. I mean, it's just, they're daunting. I, I just, I just can't imagine being in Laura's seat. But I think the thing is, is, you know, can we, slow down just a minute. I mean, we all want immediate gratification. There's so much pressure from constituents to for d- deliverables. And the reality is you have to be able to have people look further. Um, I remember years ago when we were talking about the pension problems in, in the U.S. And a reminder, uh, one gentleman told me, he said, what the U.S. needs is a commitment to posterity. And of course, that means looking at beyond our lifetime. And that's a, it's really difficult for people to do that. I mean, it's just hard. I would agree with that. And you, it's hard to impose your vision when you don't control the whole thing. Something that we value in Nassau County is local control, which is why we have all of these independent governmental entities costs a lot of money, but people really seem to like this local control. So the regional approach, you know, you sort of, it's that old cliche, think globally, act locally, and start with small things and keep pushing. So it's been decades, for instance, to get this third track going. It's our main line of the Long Island Railroad, third track that allows for more commuting. It allows for off rush hour commuting, cross commuting, et cetera. The other effect is that it's inspiring and encouraging transit-oriented development, which I think solves so many of our problems in Nassau County. So walkable downtowns to keep our young people. We were settled as a suburb where everyone wanted to get out of the city and have their patch of green and the, the baseball field down the block, which we love and we value. But we also are finding that young people are leaving. They don't necessarily want that responsibility of a single home. So there are some villages we don't control the zoning on the county level if the towns and the villages have, have done this, have, done, have built apartments by the train, their downtowns are revitalized. It's almost like magic. But to make that happen in a place that's resistance to change, resistance to change, it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of persistence and encouragement. So we have an IDA that does tax incentives. We can do that on the county level. We have t- uh, county roads that we can make more accessible for bikes, for buses, safer to walk down. So we do that wherever we can. But when you think about density where it makes sense, it's good for the environment. It reduces the carbon footprint. It's great for the economy because people, when they walk around, they shop, they they dine locally, they do local entertainment, and it keeps more people here. A lot of our older folks can't afford to live here. They want to downsize. They have to move to the Carolinas or something. We want to create more of those kinds of communities to keep the young people, to keep the empty nesters. And it really, it's great for the economy. It's great for the environment. And it's also great for the quality of life. This feeds back into a very related question for Laura and Tom, both from George Freelander, who many of you, at least in the muni market, know well. George was asking about some of the issues Tom brought up, and they have bearing on what we see in Nassau as well, is the, the credit implications of climate change 
migration patterns driven by climate change, economy highly dependent on water. Laura mentioned uh, your efforts to protect your aquifer. So number one, what are the credit implications of, of all of this? And number two, especially for Laura, how can you achieve some of the goals you're seeking with funds from Washington? One very, very small example, but I think it's kind of the perfect example. We are about 90% sewered here in Nassau County, but on the North Shore, there are are about 30,000 properties that are not on sewers, they're on septic tanks. And most of these septic tanks are old and they you know, leach a lot of nitrogen down into the aquifer and also out into the water, out up into the North Shore. And that's not good for you know, obvious reasons. So we're using this federal money that we have for as a grant for people to upgrade their sewage, their, their septic tanks. And we had a, a vendor's fair yesterday up in Oyster Bay. A lot of people came to check it out. These smaller, more efficient, modern, much less nitrogen leaching septic tanks. So we want to encourage that as much as possible. That's one way that we can use this federal money to do that. I would also say, you know, we're using it for things like public safety. We um, have a new police academy that we've built. And now we're, we're, we've spoken to Tom Swazi, who's on the Problem Solvers Caucus with Representative Bordeaux and Kathleen Rice and our other so Senator Schumer for money in the infrastructure plan for a technical training village with our police academy. Because, you know, when you have that muscle memory, you don't have those horrible incidents that we've been seeing with police across the country. We want to make sure that we're training people as well as possible. So when you have, you know, stable communities, safe communities, and more environmentally resilient communities, that's good for the economy. Ergo, it's good for our credit rating. That coupled with fiscal discipline, I think, is the way to go. Well, Tom, the muni market doesn't seem to pay a lot of attention in terms of uh, pricing and uh, how they assess risk to many of the issues you and, and George have, have highlighted. What's the solution? Well, it's hard to get people to look long term. And so here we are investing, as I've mentioned earlier, you know, we're if municipalities or states are issuing 20 and 30 year debt. Rating agencies are looking at a two to three year time horizon. The investors are looking to satisfy the need for the or the want of uh, tax exempt income. So as we've seen over the last three years, there's been more money you know, seeking tax exempt bonds than we've ever seen in, in the history of the market. That's making it very easy for Laura to refinance her debt and for to issue to borrow more for various projects. But the, the market is absolutely numb to it. And it's again, it's because it's, it's everything is very short-sighted. And that's it's that's a real challenge when you're dealing with this climate issue that is, you know, could be the, the biggest thing that threatens our our civilization and and our way of life. And to not be able to look, you know, out beyond two or three years is you know, it's really is disappointing. But again, as as and I totally agree with Laura, and I recognize it, change is really hard. I spent uh, three weeks ago, Columbia University held a four day conference on migration, just dealing with where are the vulnerable communities, and say around New York City, again, where the the people who were redlined back during the era in the 1930s by Robert Moses, that the most disadvantaged are are in areas that are most vulnerable to climate. And those people are, are won't have to may not be able to be to receive the kind of resilient type of projects that will protect their community. You know, even for example, the discussion now on some of those areas is getting the community involved to choose what data will be the data that will drive what projects being done. 
well, my God, I mean, that's, I mean, that just prolongs the process, makes it even more difficult for decisions to be made. But the, the municipal market, and, you know, which is funds and a source of funding for 75% of the infrastructure across the United States, and we all know that it's inadequate. But what it has been able to do is that in this, this kind of slow build process is that it's made people pick and choose what projects get done. It's because of the importance of balancing budgets and um, local oversight because of the exemption is it that's those are all been good things in the planning process but now we have this federal dollars that will be you know beyond our imagination that's going to be coming into the marketplace and just or and into the government coffers to for these various projects and how to spend it this is where you know, again coming back to planning and being able to look toward the future and not just over the next two or three years. I mean, and it's, it's again, come back, it's hard. <laughs> Tom, may I follow up with a question? You spoke to the importance of infrastructure audits. So at what level? Every level? I think this is where the, I mean, this is where I envision and, and we as a firm have long advocated for the federal government to take the lead on this because I think that's what's necessary to be done. We back of the envelope type of a thing. It's a $10 billion expenditure. And what this helps to do is identify when the federal government's being lobbied for this project or that project is that you have a, a be able to identify what areas are most vulnerable and where dollars should be spent. So I think it has to be a federal coordinated effort. Again, that's always the risk. It kind of go, runs counter to a lot of the way we're set up in a, with a state and local oversight, which is, has so many positives associated with it. This is now a, you know, this is a war effort. We've seen how difficult it has been just to deal with COVID and to coalesce around some kind of federal leadership to drive a program. And I think we could make arguments that there have been Pockets of success, like it's been in Nassau County and other areas, and maybe in Idaho where it hasn't been that successful. And that's disappointing, but it also argues about how much effort and persistence, again, in borrowing from Laura's comments, that's required in order to have success beyond our lifetimes and for our children and grandchildren. So I do think it's at the federal level, though, Susan. I think that's where it comes. Let me push that to Laura. Do you see a role then in interacting with the federal level and the state level on planning for the long run? And what would that be? Yes, it's really important. And the thing to do is identify things that you can actually get done and just keep pushing, stay persistent. You know, it happens so often, I think, just in human nature. You have a great idea, you brainstorm about it, and then you, everyone goes their separate ways and kind of forgets about it. So you've got to keep pushing these things. The third track is a perfect example. East side access is a perfect example. So that's so that we can, you know, travel on the Long Island Railroad into the into New York City, going into the east side instead of just the west side. Something right now that we're working on is offshore wind. The state, New York State, has very ambitious goals for offshore wind. It takes a lot of work. You have to work with communities that may be resistant. You've got to work with the fishermen. You've got to work with the, the people who love the birds. It's about working together across all levels of government towards a shared goal. And you just keep pushing. You can't stop. You can't take your eye off the ball. Be relentless for resilience. I'm going to turn it back to Bill Glasgow for closing comments. And personally, I just want to thank both you, Laura and Tom, for a terrific conversation. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.
Thanks very much, Susan. Thank you to Laura, to Tom, to Carolyn Berto and, and Governor Little. It's been great. One thing uh, just related to what Tom and, and uh, Laura just said, talking to people at FEMA, it's very clear they're, they're interested, I'm not speaking for them, but, but they're interested in uh, pivoting somewhat from being reactive to being preventative and proactive. And that's most states, the, the, the few states that look at their infrastructure in a systematic fashion, are mostly looking backwards at, at what needs to be done to fix rather than what needs to be done to prevent. That's the real test that we'll see over time. So we're, uh, we're wrapping up now. We want to get out of here at the top of the hour and, and let you get back to your busy lives. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.